I first learned the difference between average and normal in a class on statistics when I was in college. It was one of my favorite classes, and I don't know why, but I did well in the class, and I, I, I really got the concepts pretty good. And that's where I first learned that normal and average are not the same things. Now, all of us know what an average is. I mean, when I was in school, didn't we love it when the teacher averaged the grades? And, you know, that made it easier for us to get better grades because you didn't grade strictly on right or wrong, but the average of the class, and so many got this, and so, you know, all those kinds of things. But average is when you take all of the things together, whatever it is that you're judging or looking at, and then you add up the scores and you divide by the number of participants and you have an average. Let's just say it's a history test and you have 20 students in the class and the average score of all the students is 75. That would be right in the statistical middle of the score, but somebody made 100 and somebody made a 40, but the average, you see, was 75. Now, let's look at the idea of what is normal. Normal is the way something was intended to be. Something the way it was designed to be. Whether you're talking about a manufactured product or you're talking about uh, animals or you're talking about scores on a test, a normal person will do certain things because that's what's expected, that's what's the design. But unfortunately, many of us are not really striving for normalcy. We're striving for average. Now think about that. In some areas of life, average is good enough. We don't want a star. We just want somebody who's average in this role. We don't want to have to pay the price if we're going to hire somebody to be the star and to be outstanding in every category and, and normal. Uh, we want somebody who's just gets along okay with everybody and they're not too high and they're not too low, they're just average. Now be honest, moms, those of you moms with daughters, anybody here have a daughter? Okay, anybody here a daughter? Yeah, everybody's a daughter that's a woman, right? Okay. <laughs> Would you rather your daughter marry somebody who's just average or somebody who's completely normal? I think I know where you're going with that. I think I know what you think about that. And I know for some of you, your son-in-law is, is not normal. <laughs> he might be average, but boy, he's not normal. He's not really what we had in mind. Well, now, here's, how, here's what I want you to do this morning. Here's the heart of the message that God has laid on my heart for today. I'm convinced that many people who call themselves Christians are just average. And there are few who are or even seek to be normal. Now think about that again. Let me give you some averages. The average Christian attends church once a month. Once a month. The average Christian spends less, less than three minutes a day in prayer. The average Christian cannot name for you the 66 books of the Bible. The average Christian has memorized less than five verses of Scripture. 
The average Christian gives less than 2% of their income to the Lord's work through any Christian organization, be it the church or Billy Graham or some Christian organization that helps children. Is that what you aspire to? Is that what you are? You say, well, if that's the average Christianity, I'm not sure I want to be that because that's too close to where I already am. What are we striving for in the church? We don't want average Christians. We want normal Christians. You see the difference? So the question then becomes, well, what does a normal Christian look like? How does a normal Christian live? Now, the last three Sundays, I've been preaching about revival. And you know, the results of revival is a revived, a renewed life. Someone who has rededicated themselves to the way it ought to be in their life between them and the Lord, the way they ought to live, the way they ought to relate to God. And so if you're looking for a biblical definition of what is the normal Christian life, I can think of no other passage in the Bible that's more complete than the one we just read. There is one big statement at the beginning. There are four components that make up this normal Christian life. And then there's one thing at the end that is the test of whether or not your life is a normal Christian life. And if you're honest in looking at this scripture, if you're honest with yourself, you don't have to shout and proclaim it to me. It's not up to me and you, it's up to you and God. You might find yourself subnormal and just average. Okay? I just want to warn you, disclaimer, before we get started. So what does the scripture actually say? I don't have any notes either, folks. I'm preaching without notes today, and it's not because I'm smart. It's just because this is so clear and so plain in scripture that that's all we need to see. The first thing we see in this verse is just as you received Christ, just like you received him, Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Now consider that for just a minute. How did you receive Jesus? I'm not talking about the physical circumstances. You may say, well, I came down the aisle at the end of a service and gave my heart to the Lord, and I, I shook the preacher's hand, and we prayed a prayer, and I got baptized, and I've been saved ever since. Praise the Lord. That's how probably most of us came to Christ. But that's not the point of the Scripture. Notice what it says. Just as you received, what's the next word? Christ Jesus, how? As Lord. Now, what I suspect is some people receive Christ Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Notice it says, as Lord. What does the word Lord mean? It means the one who is in charge, the one who has the right to tell you how to live your life, the one who has the ability to know what's best for you and to guide you into the best way for your life. That's the meaning of the word Lord. Somebody who's king, who's boss, who's superintendent. I had some paper routes and, and I had uh, some lawn mowing duties that I earned some money from. But then when I was in high school, I had my first real job in a company where I got a regular paycheck. And it was a part-time job at a wholesale drug distribution company, not an illegal distribution company now, I warn you. And I learned really quick that the man whose name was on my paycheck was the boss because he signed my paycheck. And if I wanted to get paid, I had to do what he said. If I didn't do what he said, I didn't get paid, or I didn't get the right amount of pay, or, you know, I could have lost my job. Now, he was a gracious man to put up with a lot of my shenanigans, but 
I understood real quick. Do you understand that about the Lord Jesus? Not in the same sense that he's our boss, but that he is the Lord. He's not the good man upstairs. He's not the old man in heaven. He's the Lord. He is the absolute sovereign of the entire universe. He created everything that is. He keeps it all going. He's the one who opens the door for us to have eternal security and eternal salvation. Listen, one day we're all going to stand before him and give reason as to how we lived our lives. Not for our salvation, but we're going to be held responsible as Christians for how we've used our time, our opportunity, our resources, our abilities, our talents. He's not just your Savior, so that when you die, you won't go to hell. You see, that's what some people have the concept of, what it means to be a Christian. Though that is gloriously true, it's a part of the truth, it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is this, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in Him. So as you sit here this morning, as you think about this, is Jesus your Lord or is he just a good friend? Or is he just someone you pray to when you need something? Who is Jesus to you? You see, if you have received him as Lord, then you're supposed to continue in that relationship. So day by day by day, he is your Lord. Now, how did you receive him as Lord? That's important as well. Did you receive him as Lord any other way than by faith? It's invalid. Sometimes people question about children being saved. Children can be saved at younger ages. I wouldn't say much younger than six or seven, and that would be rare in and of itself, but it happens. And that child must understand that I'm turning my life over to Jesus, and he's going to be my Lord. He's going, he's going to tell me how to live and guide me. And sometimes when a child receives Christ with all sincerity... The thing that happens is that their spiritual growth does not match their intellectual growth or their emotional growth. And whether it's the parent's fault or not, I don't know, but I think parents have primary responsibility for raising their children spiritually, just like they do for raising their children physically and educationally in every other way. So that when they're 16 and 17 and 18 getting ready to go off to college and finally they get in that freshman year of college and they have professors who are determined to take away their faith... Many of the kids seem to lose their faith. Why? They have the faith of a child, but they have the intellect of a college freshman. And they're not equipped to do battle with the smart aleck professor who thinks he's going to have a lot of fun and destroy the faith of these little Christians that come into his classroom. You say, you don't know what you're talking about. Yes, I do. I've counseled with too many college students. I've read too many reports. Now, I'm not saying every college professor is an atheist or an agnostic or somebody determined to destroy faith, but I'm saying a good number of them are. And why is it that sometimes you may have grown up in the church, you made a profession of faith in all sincerity at the age of eight, but now as an adult you sometimes wonder, am I really saved or not? Does my life really look like a Christian life? Am I living the kind of life I need to live? And so all of us have responsibility to continue by faith with Jesus as Lord. Not just a good buddy, not just a good friend, not just a, an emergency call upon, but as someone who day by day is the Lord of your life and you continually look to him for guidance, direction, for strength. And, and when you fall and when you make a mistake, you, you confess your sin to him, of course. 
and you restore that fellowship that you once knew with him as Lord. That's the first thing it says, and perhaps that's the most important thing in this entire text. But it goes on to say these other things. For instance, it says, as you continue in this life, just like you received Christ Jesus, here are some things you need to continue in. Number one, continue to live in him, but uh, number one, being rooted in him, being built up in him, being established in the faith just as you were taught. Three big things and one smaller thing. How are you rooted in Jesus? I've learned in, in uh, my little forays into gardening a few things about rootedness. <laughs> uh, last week I was trying to pull up some weeds in our flower beds. I try to do that at least a couple times a year to make my neighbors think that at least I do understand the process. Uh, but the rest of the times they kind of wonder if I pay any attention to it, I guess. And uh, it's a shame that uh, putting mulch on your flower beds doesn't kill out the weeds. Uh, I try to cover them up every now and then, uh, you know. But there are some weeds, when you, when you pull them up, if you pull them up close to the ground, the whole root system comes up. But there's this one briar-like weed that's in my flower beds, especially the ones around the roses and, and uh, those other flowers we got there in the front of our yard. And no matter how I do it, I pull that thing and, and the stem breaks, but the roots don't come up. And next week, that roots go put up another stem. And, uh, and I've even tried uh, weed killer, and it doesn't kill it. You know what I'd say about that plant? It is rooted. <laughs> it is well rooted. It's there to stay. That's what it means for you as a Christian as you walk by faith day by day to be rooted in what? Being rooted and built up in him, in Christ. One of the reasons why a lot of people are so quick to fall to the professor's accusations against Christianity is they don't have any root. Remember the parable of the sower that Jesus told us? He told about the different types of soil. And there are two types of, of seeds that went into the soil that had no root. One was the rocky ground, and the, the soil was shallow, and though it did put down some roots, it didn't go deep enough so that the sun wilted the plant. The other was the hardened soil where the seed never got in the soil in the first place. It never produced any, any roots. And sometimes people in the church, they have a profession of faith, but they don't live the faith, and they don't study the faith, and they don't read in the faith, uh, in the Word. And so their roots are shallow if they have any roots at all, and they're easily plucked up. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but let me just tell you the truth. I've seen it happen so many times in the church. Hardly ever do you see anybody getting upset and angry and leaving the church because of a doctrinal issue. You know why people get upset and angry and leave the church? They get their feelings hurt. Or they get mad at the preacher. Or the preacher gets mad at them. And, and we have a falling out with people, and we just don't see eye to eye with people. Now, listen, I know some of you were in other churches, and I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church. I'm just simply saying that oftentimes the biggest reason people leave a church in anger and, and in heartbrokenness is because of a squabble that has nothing to do with theology, that has nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. And you know what I say? 
they have pretty shallow roots pretty shallow roots I remember visiting a lady one time and I, I won't tell you where it is uh, what church it was but it was in Georgetown County if that helps and uh, I said to her I said you know I haven't seen you in church for a little while is something wrong have you been sick she said well I was sick for a week or two preacher but after I was gone for about three Sundays my Sunday school class nobody called to find out where I was where I, where I was out Nobody seemed to care, and, and, and nobody in the church. You're the first person that's ever asked about me not being there. I just, I'm not sure if I want to go back or not. And I wanted to say, well, you just tell me where you want your church letter sent, and I'll be happy to send it by airmail. In fact, I was willing to hand deliver that one. Why is that? People have no root. Are your roots in Highland Park Baptist Church, or are your roots in Jesus Christ? Are you rooted in the word of God? Are you rooted in your salvation through Jesus Christ? Are you rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ? Or are you rooted in how you feel about things? I don't know. What is your root system like? And so those who have been saved have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord, not just their get-out-of-hell-free card. They are to be rooted in him and not in the preacher. <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, here's what happens. I've noticed this. Every time the pastor leaves the church, there's some people are going to leave too. Why? Well, the evidence says they're rooted in the pastor. On the other hand, every time a preacher leaves the church, there are some people in the church who start coming back who didn't come while he was there. Why? Because they were rooted in a former pastor, and they certainly weren't rooted in that pastor. And I would add this, they certainly weren't rooted in Jesus Christ. Here's how you treat a pastor you don't like. You pray for him doubly, triply hard. That God would make him the best pastor in the whole world. And when God starts answering that prayer, some other church that's bigger and better off is going to come and call him away from you. And you can get another, to, I mean another preacher to be your pastor. Right? That's right. I mean, not everybody's going to like, I mean, I wish everybody liked me. Uh, just as much as I like me, I mean, I'm sorry, just as much as my wife likes me, you know. But that's not real, is it? That's not going to happen. And so are you rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then the next thing it says is being built up in him. Built up in him. How do you get built up in the Lord? This is certainly talking about your spiritual strength, your spiritual structure. I was listening to a a preacher on the radio, uh, on the television a few weeks ago. And he was preaching against the prosperity gospel. The so-called name it, claim it preachers. And <laughs> I'll tell you what he said. This is not what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm telling you what he said. He called those people prosperity pimps. <laughs> you can write that down because that's not for me. Prosperity pimps. Well, I'm not sure if we have any prosperity pimps around here. I certainly don't preach the name it, claim it gospel, so-called word of faith gospel. But you know what I believe we have instead of prosperity pimps around our church? I think we have some real spiritual wimps. Spiritual wimps. W-I-M-P. I said that. I'll write my name by it if you want me to. And by that, here's what I mean. 
we get so caught up in the things of the world and we bring those things into the church that we don't have spiritual strength, spiritual legs to stand on, and we get upset about the wrong things because we've not been built up in the Lord. Anybody here ever hear of Charles Atlas? Some of you older people probably have. Charles Atlas was a man who started the bodybuilding uh, business, selling weights and all kinds of other stuff. And one of his best advertisements was about a man who was at the beach with his girlfriend and another man came along and liked the girlfriend and he kicked sand in the man's face who was the boyfriend of the girlfriend. And the man who kicked the sand was big and muscular and, and what was the wimpy guy going to do about it? Well, Charles Atlas said, you need to start lifting weights, you need to start working out and we can teach you and help you and sell you stuff to do that so that when somebody kicks sand in your girlfriend's direction, you can stand up and you can take them on and you can whip them. Here's what happens in the church. We have people who have professed their faith in Jesus, people who have joined the church, who have been baptized, who call themselves Christians, who may even be active and attend the church, but they're spiritual wimps because anytime trouble comes along, they back off and fade away. They don't want to be involved in trouble. They don't want to be involved in anything heavy. They don't want to serve in any way that they don't feel comfortable doing. They're wimps. You see, the devil can defeat them with a little kick of sand. Where are those men and women who have spiritual strength who don't get turned off when things get tough? Those men and women who are willing to stand on the Word of God and they're not going to let the controversy destroy them. They're going to stand for the truth and they're going to do it in a godly way. My pastor that I grew up under, Brother Jesse, he said, you know, any old fly can find a sore. Anybody who wants to complain can always find something to complain about. You got something you want to complain about? Most every Baptist I know does. The temperature's too hot in the church. The temperature's too cold in the church. The music's too loud in the church. I can't even hear the music in the church. Why don't we ever sing this song? I like this song. Why do we always have to sing these songs that I don't even know? Wish that preacher would cut his sermon a lot shorter. I'm hungry. I mean, you could just imagine all kinds of complaints. And if you really want to hear some complaining, bring up something controversial at the church business meeting. I said years ago, and I think it's true today, if you really want to have good attendance at the church business meeting, then you have to plan it a month in advance. So let's just say this coming church business meeting, which will be in October, I think somebody should make a motion that we double the staff salaries, all of them, all the way around, just double them, and put it off for a month to vote on it. You'll have a crowd. And you'll have people with 15 things, 15 reasons why that's not a good idea. You see, we get excited about some of those controversial issues, and what does it mean in the end result? It doesn't mean anything, does it? Does it matter what color the walls are? Does it matter what color the carpet is? Does it matter whether the organ is on one side and the piano is on the other side? What, what does it matter? And the reason is we're spiritual wimps. We're not built up in the faith. And how do you get built up in the faith? Let me just tell you quickly how you do it. You spend time every day in the Word of God. You spend time every day communing with God. 
you take seriously your commitment to Bible study in a group, whether it's Sunday school or a small group, you do attend worship, not with a critical eye, but with an open heart to what God has to say to you. You know what? Even if a preacher who preaches is 99% wrong in what he says, there's 1% out there that God's going to use to bless you. And instead of coming with a complaining attitude about things aren't right or we don't meet at the right time, I mean, there was a guy in another church I served in this county, though I won't mention the name of that church, who was very faithful every Sunday. I could tell you where he was going to sit, and I knew he was going to be there. If he wasn't there 15 minutes early, he wouldn't be there. He's of that generation like some of you are. If you go anywhere, you're going to be 15 minutes early. That's just your nature, and that's wonderful. And so he quit coming. And eventually I had a chance to visit him. I mean, this was two or three months down the road. And I called his name and said, man, I haven't seen you. Where in the world have you been? He said, well, preacher, I can't come anymore. And I thought, what's wrong? Now, he lived about eight houses or so down the street from the church building. I mean, he was really close. And he said, well, you changed the service time on me. And my daughter always comes to, to go to church with me, and she can't get here at that hour, so I can't come anymore. And I thought, wow, I wonder what it's going to be like when God judges Christians for their rewards and says, what did you do with your time, opportunity, your ability, your resources? And he says, well, God, I couldn't go to church anymore because they stopped having church at 11 and started at 1030. And that's literally what happened. And so I couldn't go anymore. What about God's going to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Those people shouldn't have done that to you. You see what I'm saying? Spiritual wimps. You're just looking for an excuse to get knocked off. Just looking for an excuse to start sloughing off and not doing what you ought to do. I think every sermon ought to have something about money in it. Some of you are spiritual wimps when it comes to giving money to the Lord's work. I need to have a conversation with you, Josh, about your prayer this morning. And uh, some of the others who pray at the offering, we always talk about we give you so little. I want to pray for those people that give a lot. <laughs> right, Robert? Yeah. Uh, it is a little in comparison to what all that God gives us. But I want to have some people who are spiritual giants. Man, I want to give more and more and more to God's work. I'm laying up treasures in heaven. I'm really looking forward to heaven. I'm not dreading the day it comes. I want to see it come. And I want to keep putting aside treasure in heaven instead of treasure on earth. And some people are so stingy, as my pastor used to say, they wouldn't give a nickel to see a bumblebee to bale a hay. And it seems like they're so stingy, they won't even consider giving a tithe, which isn't a law, but it's a principle, you see. And we get all upset about when the preacher preaches on money or the church always wants my money. Have you ever seen a television program that didn't ask for your money? Only on education TV, and they're doing it now. Have you noticed how the education TV always lists their sponsors and have a little commercial? And you can watch a TV program that's on the major networks, and between those breaks where they have, you can have 12 or 15 commercials. And what are those commercials? Well, they want your money. If you complain about the church wanting your money, you ought to stop watching TV and be honest about it and consistent. That's all I'm going to say about money. Can you say amen? All right. So we're being rooted and built up in him 
And what is the next one? Look at the verse if you've got your Bible open. Built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. How do you get established in the faith? There's no way to be established in the faith except through sound doctrine. You are established in the faith through sound. And what is sound doctrine? Is it the Baptist faith and message? Not necessary. You see, the Baptist faith and message is the doctrinal statement that our church has adopted as our doctrinal statement. That doesn't mean every individual has to believe every part of it, but as a general rule, this is what our church stands on. And it's the same one that the Southern Baptist Convention adopted as a group. doesn't say every church has to believe this. We're non-creedal people. We are covenantal people, and this is our covenant with people. But the Baptist faith and message is nothing more nor less than a compendium of theology with many, many different scripture references for each point. Now, some of you didn't know that. Shame on you. Some of you never had the opportunity to think about it. Shame on my predecessors, including me. I have copies of the Baptist Faith and Message. I've passed them out. We've got enough. If you want one, you certainly can get it. But you see, you'll never be fully established in your faith if you're familiar with biblical Bible doctrine. There's a young pastor up in West Virginia. He wasn't really too bright, but he felt God had called him to preach. And when he got in the pulpit, he didn't shed a lot of light, but he sure did light some fires. (laughs) And he and I were talking one day. I was a supervising pastor. He was a pastor over a couple of counties from where I was in Parkersburg. And And so once in a while, maybe once every couple of months or six weeks, I'd meet with him and we'd talk about how the church was going and all like that. And one day he said, well, Pastor Ron said, I don't preach no doctrine. I said, really? What do you preach? I just preach the Bible. Don't preach no doctrine. And I thought, well, if you're not preaching doctrine, you're not preaching the Bible, you see. So how do you learn doctrine? You read the Bible. How do you learn what the doctrine of salvation is? You read the Bible. How do you learn doctrine about the end times, eschatology? You read the Bible. You hear it taught. You you get into it. You study it. You pray about it. You consider it. You make notes about your questions, and you try to underline things that strike you. And you go on and on and on. There are many different ways. And so some of you have been in Sunday school for 60 years. Some of you have been in Sunday school for 80 years, maybe. And during that time of being in Sunday school for all those years, do you think you know Bible doctrine? I don't know. You be the judge. Do you think you have matured in your area of knowledge of the Word of God? Now, who's responsible for that? You see, the church is not primarily responsible. The church is a helper to you. The church does not take responsibility to educate you. We facilitate helping you be educated, but you are the one responsible for your own theological, doctrinal education. And we're there to help you. And it's our goal to facilitate, to try to make avenues open to you to be able to grow in your faith, to be able to be building up your mind building up your testimony, building up your knowledge of the Word of God. And so if you haven't taken responsibility for it, I'd say you're average. (laughs) 
just average. But that's not normal. That's not normal. And then notice one last thing. I said there were four, there's three, and here's the fifth one. Here's the last thing. Established in the faith, that's knowing the doctrine. Just as you were taught, and here's the last thing, verse 7. And overflowing with gratitude. Now, honestly, how many people do you know who are like that? Who are always giving thanks to God for something and things that God has done in their lives. A lot of people say, well, how are you doing? Oh, man, it's, it's rough. I got, I got a lot of problems. Well, that, that may be true, but are you thankful even for your problems? Paul said, give thanks in everything. He didn't say give thanks for everything. There are a lot of things we can't give thanks for. But we can give thanks in every circumstance, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. In other words, sometimes God wants us and plans for us to go through difficulties and trials for the purpose of strengthening us to face even bigger trials and to have position spiritually in realms of life in the eternal heavens that we don't know anything about right now. God is preparing us not for a, a life of ease, sitting in an easy chair, walking among the clouds, sipping on honey and playing a harp. That's not a true picture of heaven. You see, that's just some made-up idea that people have about heaven, though something like that's mentioned, but that's not the, that's not the total picture. And so we, as a people, need to practice giving thanks to God and the Father for all things. First of all, we have this wonderful salvation. How many of your sins does God hold against you once you've been saved? How many? None. Why is that? When Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he die for? And when you became saved, who did he put in you? The Holy Spirit. Who is your constant companion in all things? Who is it that says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Who is it who said, ask of me anything you will, and according to my Father's will, according to the Son's name, and it will be done for you? Who said that? It was Jesus. I mean, what's not to give thanks for? You know, I heard about a woman who was a staunch Presbyterian, and she was so Calvinistic, and she believed that not only everything that happened to her was planned by God, but that God wanted it to happen. So one day she fell down the steps, she didn't break anything. She was really bruised, and she was in a lot of pain. She said, well, thank God that's over with. I don't believe God causes all things, but I believe God uses all things. Isn't that what he says in Romans eight twenty eight? And we know that in how many things? All things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose you've been called for his purpose sure if you've been saved you've been called you see jesus said in john 6 44 no one comes to the father except uh, no one comes to me except the father calls him and so when you were still a lost sinner it was the father by the holy spirit who convicted you of your sin and taught you that you needed jesus that you had to respond God's not going to make you respond. God's not going to force you to have faith. We know the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when you hear the word of God and you read the scriptures and someone teaches it or preaches it or you read it, 
The Holy Spirit works through the word to bring conviction. And when that conviction comes, God enables you to have faith and you have to exercise that faith. And when you do, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. How can you not give thanks in any circumstance when you know that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? So, are you normal? Or are you just average? Now, sometimes we do abnormal things. I mean, what's an old man like me buying a sports car for? Just to make people wonder, I guess. I don't know. One of my best friends in the world is a, a pastor who's uh, living in Kentucky. He and I were in seminary together, and we once pastored in the same town, and we've kept up with other, each other throughout the years, and once in a great while we get to meet each other and, and see each other. And one of his favorite statements is, Dylan, you ain't right. I'm not trying to confuse people. I'm just trying to be me and just trying to be real. What about you? Are you faking it, being a Christian? Just calling yourself a Christian because you got baptized or you made an emotional commitment, but you're not sure you have Christ in you? You might be an average Christian, but that's not normal. Let's pray. I can't promise you any special blessing. But I want to ask you to join me in prayer this morning for our church. I think God has a bright plan for our future. I don't know all the details. I think he's revealing some things to me, and I've been trying to lead in those directions. But I need a lot of you to pray with me that God will bring our church to normalcy. That God will help those who are weak, those who haven't really been well-rooted, those who haven't been established in the faith those who aren't being built up. One of the ways you can tell if a Christian is really normal is are they a person of thanksgiving, always giving thanks to God the Father? I know some Christians are always complaining, always have something to gripe about. That's not normal. It might be average. That's not normal. So would some of you be willing to commit with me to pray for our church that we would become a normal church? If so, just come right up to the front and find a place to sit or to stand or to kneel right now while our hearts are waiting and listening and while we have this moment of silence. I'm not asking you to make a new commitment or promise anything. Just generally say, Pastor, I'm with you. I want to pray for you. But more than that, I want to pray for myself and I want to pray for our church that we would be a normal church. Not just average. Not just like other churches. And you know what happens when a church sets its heart and mind on being that normal church? The enemy attacks. The enemy will bring up all kinds of substitutes. The enemy will bring up all kinds of reasons why it can't be all of us are imperfect. We're going to make our mistakes, but we don't have to dwell there. We don't have to live there. And if you can, pray this in your heart as I pray it out loud. 
Lord Jesus, I want to be a normal Christian. I don't want to be an average Christian with my life. I don't want my life to just fade away into non-significance. But I want to be normal. I want you to use me in whatever way is fitting and pleasing for you. You know, normal for Billy Graham is preaching in crusades. Normal for Christian musicians is to sing and play their instruments. Normal for different people means different things in terms of their activity, in terms of their popularity, their exposure to the national press. But I want to be normal for me, Lord. I want to be what's normal for me, what you expect of me in my context. And Father, more than that, I want it for our church that we be a normal church that you can use and will use for the sake of your kingdom. Remind me each day, Lord, to pray for this church. Remind me that I am a representative of this church because I'm a member, because I have a connection. And help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to be a good representation of this church.